Morning, guys. How are you? Uh, in 1804, Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery were commissioned to find a water route that connected the Pacific Ocean. I don't know if it's actually that way. The Pacific Ocean to the Mississippi River. It's something that uh, people have been looking for for over 300 years and from at least four different sovereign nations. And uh, the, the experts uh, made their best guesses and sketches of what that whole thing looked like. And basically the assumption of the day is that the West, which nobody had really seen before, was basically like the East. And so there was, a, uh, there was water, streams, and rivers that, that gently rose over thousands of miles up to a peak and then descended uh, westward all the way to the ocean. So uh, presumably, you'd be able to grab some boats and some canoes, and you'd be able to go upriver, and then you'd just be able to simply and very easily drift downriver until you reached your destination, which made Lewis and Clark the perfect candidates for the job because they were were uh, proven expert river explorers. This was their bread and butter. This was their jam. I don't know if I have any other like culinary uh, examples here, but they were really good at it. The real discovery was that all of their assumptions, all of their plans, all of their maps for the journey were completely and utterly wrong. After 15 months of traveling upstream, they thought, finally, we're almost there. We're going to hit that point where the journey, journey finally gets easy. And we can basically just like, we can coast. It's all downhill from here. We just like sit in the canoes and we just like sail all the way to our destination. But what they really found were the Rocky Mountains. And they, man, they hadn't, ever seen anything like this before in their life. There was uh, a journal entry from one member of the Corps that said this. He said that these were the most terrible mountains I ever beheld. I mean, the peaks, they, they expanded further than the eye could possibly see. And they realized in that moment that they were officially in uncharted territory. They didn't have a map for what lied, be, uh, lied ahead of them. And they realized that the canoes that they brought, the ones they relied on to get them all the way to this point, and the ones that they thought would be the things that they needed to get them to their destination, the ocean, were now totally useless here. You can't canoe mountains. And I tell you this because I think that there are seasons in life that feel a lot like this. Places and seasons where we feel like we have fallen off the map completely where the things uh, and the tools and the ways of life that have worked so well in the past, they no longer seem effective for the new terrain that we're facing, where our faith, where our wisdom, where our spiritual practices, all these things that we have relied on up to this point now seem to, to, to just fail us. It's not working anymore. And in my own experience, uh, grief and loss is one such place. Suffering is one of these seasons. But it's not really so much like falling off the map as it is feeling like you are just like forcefully thrown off the map because this isn't a journey I signed up for. 
This isn't one that I set out to be a part of, and yet here I am. I'm standing before the most terrible mountains I've ever beheld with no end in sight. And you realize that the landscape of your life has suddenly and radically changed, and the world before you is nothing like the world behind you. And to make matters worse, the tools that you have become so accustomed to, the wisdom that you are so used to utilizing, your spiritual practices and your faith that you've relied on and used for so long in this moment feels wildly ineffective and ill-suited for where I now find myself. And there are various kinds of loss that we experience throughout our life that can leave us feeling lost, leave us feeling helpless, leave us feeling like just totally disoriented. We may face the loss of a loved one. We can experience the loss of health, the loss of happiness, The loss of a dream or an expected future, the loss of abundance, the loss of a resting place, the loss of a relationship or trusted allies in your life, the loss of prestige and status or courage or security, the loss of a job, a home, or something that we cherish in our life. I mean, our whole community just endured one loss after another over the last three years with the pandemic and the shooting just across the street at King Supers and and a fire that robbed a thousand families of their homes and all the belongings and memories that that contained them, that they held. And uh, there are moments of great loss that we face in life, both individually and collectively, where you just sort of stand there bewildered and stunned or in a daze and you don't even know how or where to take the first step. And so what often happens is we can feel just like completely stuck in despair or on the other hand, we just don't know what to do and so we just want to put it behind us as quickly as possible and try to just like rush back into a sense of normalcy. Neither is helpful for us. But this series we're in right now is called Wayfinder, Prayer as Our Guide. And we've been exploring the power of prayer and helping us navigate the often wild and rough landscape of life. And for thousands of years, people have been using prayers of lament as a sort of a a compass and a guide in the midst of great pain, grief, and loss. And you'll find prayers of lament, a a prominent theme throughout the, the entirety of scripture. We see it all throughout the book of Job, considered one of the oldest books in, in, in all of the Bible, and it's the, almost the entire thing is a lament. We actually have a book in the Bible that's called Lamentations, following the destruction of Jerusalem. Out of the 150 Psalms in Scripture, more than one-third of them are laments, both individual and congregational, or communal laments. And many other prayers and voices of lament are expressed well beyond that all the way through the New Testament, including that of Jesus himself. Prayers of lament, it's it's a sacred language uniting saints over the span of thousands of years who have struggled to navigate the suffering of life while still believing and trusting in the goodness of God. And this morning, what I want to do, in a sense, is try to teach us this language for those seasons that we find ourselves in. And so a biblical lament typically follows like a certain movement, a certain pattern, and there are four signature elements uh, that most laments have. The first one is this, it's turning to God. We begin our prayer by turning to Him, where we call on and we call out the name of God. For example, in Psalm 13, 1, 
The psalmist says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 10.1 begins in a very similar manner. It says, why, O Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You see, the naming of God in our complaint is important because it's in him that our pain actually finds meaning. Because without God, our cries just sort of collapse into meaningless as we shout into an empty sky. Now, don't get me wrong. I I think that there's something kind of cathartic about just like screaming out, just like grabbing onto a pillow and burying our face in it and crying. But it's just not the same as offering your hurt and grief into the hands of someone who loves you deeply and someone who knows your name and someone who can actually hold you back. So we call out to God. Prayers of lament, just to borrow the words from uh, the theologian and author Walter Brugman. He says that they are an utterance set down in the middle of an ongoing friendship of trust and confidence. It's an utterance set down in the middle of an ongoing friendship of trust and confidence. It is a language spoken in the context of relationship. In other words, as we express our deepest hurts and disappointments, we believe that our loving God is actually listening. And he's listening intently and he's listening with, with compassion. I'm sure you, you would agree with me and maybe some of you guys have been in this situation before where there, there is nothing worse than, than opening up and being vulnerable with someone about a great pain in your life and having them just like blankly stare back at you with indifference, just like glossed over. Like it's the worst. But when you choose to open up to a trusted friend and you share like what, what's what's bringing pain and suffering into your life. And even if you know your friend is completely powerless to to do something about your situation or help you in your situation, their compassionate attention and presence can be so incredibly comforting and grounding. Psalm 77 says this, as I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. And the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. And the night of my hand it is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. So let me ask you this. In the day of your trouble, do you seek him? And do you call his name? In your season of grief, we need to remember that, man, God is no stranger. He's no empty sky. He is your father. And what's more is he's not just simply attentive to you. He's not just present, but he's also not powerless to help you. God, he's he's keenly aware of the ache that his children feel. And he's not just aware, but he he wants you to share that ache with him. And he wants to be present with you in that place. Which brings us to the next important element of lament, which is expressing your complaint. Psalm 6, 6 through 7 says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch 
with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And so what we do is with some degree of specificity, we tell God just how troubled our life is and what the trouble is. We tell him how we feel. With as much honesty and vulnerability as we can. Now, if I'm going to be honest with you, something I've struggled with for a long time in my life is, is this fear of burdening other people with my problems. I can easily buy into this narrative that people just don't want to hear about my issues. Um, people don't want to hear about my grief. People don't want to hear about my complaints and my disappointments. And not only that, but sometimes I struggle with this like, feeling like I don't have the permission to. I'm not allowed to because who am I to complain? Who am I to just like, just like dump out my stress when, when there is so much good and, and so many great blessings in my life? And so what I'll end up doing is I'll end up just like holding it in and bottling it up. And if I get to the point where I actually do open up and share, what happens is I can often then get anxiety afterwards that I overshared. And I'm just, I'm just gonna, they're just going to think I'm like this petty, like ungrateful complainer. And so now I not only have real pain in my life, but now I have shame for expressing that pain. Can anyone relate with that? And I know that many of us have bought into the same narrative, but not just in our relationship with other people, but in our relationship with God. And we are convinced God doesn't want to hear about my pain. He doesn't want to hear about my letdowns and my frustrations. He doesn't want to hear about my doubts, my questions, and my anger. And God's got better things to do than listen to how I'm feeling right now and listen to me whine. God, God would probably be annoyed with me anyway, maybe even insulted that I would have the audacity to doubt, the gall to question, the insolence to be upset about something in my life. No, if I do come to him, it's got to be in my Sunday best with a smile on my face and praise on my lips. You guys, this is a broken narrative. And if this is a narrative that you have believed because a church somewhere has taught this or reinforced this, I am so sorry because this is not who our God is. This is, his, this is not his heart for you. And this is not how he feels about you and what you are going through. Every year in the fall, uh, the first week of school feels like a really rough reentry for my family. Uh, and I know I'm not alone here, especially for parents of young kids, uh, because all summer long, uh, our kids, they, they get to sleep in, they play with friends, they go to camp, they swim in pools, they live their best life every single day, right? It's just snacks and popsicles all day long. And, uh, and then just like that, they're waking up by 7 a.m., sometimes earlier, and they've got to race off to a full day of school, uh, that's packed with learning and behaving and socializing. And it's like a shock to the system. And uh, the kids, that, especially that first week, they come home and they, they just come undone. Parents, you guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, the, the kids will come home and I'll find one asleep face down on the stairs, still wearing his backpack, while another one's in the corner crying. And then the other one is tearing the house apart in a rampage, just looking for any kind of food at all. 
A few years ago, uh, there's a psychotherapist, educator, and author by the name of Andrea Nair. She described this phenomenon. She calls it after-school restraint collapse. (laughs) It's a real thing. Basically, the idea is something that I think that any parent has seen. All day long, the kids put up with the stress and stimulation of school, and they're able to hold it together reasonably well while they're, while they're there, right? You know that feeling where your kids are just like maniacs at home, and you go to conferences, and the teacher's like, oh, there's such an angel here, and you're like, what? <laughs> right? They, they hold it together while they're in that environment, but when they get home, all the dysregulation finally spills out all over the place. And as parents, we watch that, and we're like, they have lost their mind, But the reality is that under the the surface of the meltdown, under the surface of the tears and the screams or whatever it is, they're they're finally able to express themselves without fear of judgment or consequences. Because for them, home is considered a safe place to release. To just release and dump out all the emotions and the built-up energy of the day. This is restraint collapse. And truthfully, I mean, come on, this is, this is more than just a childhood phenomenon. But it got me thinking on a deeper level, on a spiritual level, there are times when our soul's restraint collapses and we have to cry out. There are times when life, it hits a point where we can no longer keep it together and we can try, right? But sooner or later, whether we're ready or not, that restraint collapses. And here's the point that I'm trying to make is that there is no safer place to do that than with our heavenly father because he is home for our soul. We have a God who both understands and can sympathize with your weaknesses, a God who wants to draw near to your broken heart and with him You don't have to hold it together and you don't have to hold it back because God is big enough and loving enough to hold whatever it is you give him. He's big enough to hold your anger, even if that anger is directed at him. He's big enough to hold your grief. He's big enough to hold your disappointments, even if that disappointment is about him. He's he's big enough to hold your doubts, even if what you're doubting is him. He's big enough to hold on to your relationship with him in those moments when you feel like it's held together by nothing but a thread. When you feel like, God, I don't know, I think I gotta let go of this thing. I feel like sometimes he's saying, it's okay, because I'll hold on to it, I got it. You have permission. You have permission to let go of restraint and release whatever kind of ache you are experiencing without any fear of judgment from him, without any fear of condemnation from him, you can unravel in God's presence. And I know that some people, depending on where they grew up and what kind of like religious environment they grew up, there's like this fear of like, well, isn't this mean I have no faith? Your lament does not mean you have lost faith. In fact, lamenting is an act of faith. It is a way to remain tethered to him in the midst of life's worst. We go to him and we place it all in his hands and we express it there. Psalm 55 says, evening and morning 
And at noon, I utter my complaint and I moan. And he hears my voice. The psalmist continues and he says, so cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. There's a similar tone in, in, the, in 1 Peter. It says, cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. The words cast your burdens and, and your cares, it literally means to throw off, to, to hurl your cares and your, your hurts and your anxieties on God. This does not present a picture of politeness and gentleness. Like, okay, God, I'm just going to like hold on to this and here you go. No, this is just like a just give it to him moment. Like, here, take it because I can't. And next in your prayer of lament, you make your request. You make your request. Psalm 6, 4 says, So turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. You make your request. And our requests can take many different shapes and forms and can sound like a lot of different things depending on what you're going through and what your prayer is about. It could be a plea for help. It could be a plea, uh, a request for rescue or for healing or for comfort or for God's presence or for wisdom or mercy or forgiveness. It can be a request for God to act on your behalf or even it can be us boldly asking that God would just get up and fight for us. In fact, if you, if you read through many of those psalms of lament, you'll, you'll see that many of the, requests are, many of the asks are, are a request for God to rise up and defeat and destroy their enemies. Now, I know the psalmists were living in a very different kind of world. Um, me personally, I don't have like a lot of like personal enemies, but what I, what I can't forget is something that Ephesians 6.12 says, where it says that I am fighting against, I am not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Meaning that there are forces that bring pain and suffering to our life that we can and should petition God to fight and tear down and to destroy. Like God, would you just crush this addiction that plagues my life? Would you tear down this lie that is holding us captive, that keeps coming for me. God, would you destroy this despair, this anxiety that afflicts me? Would you drive out these thoughts that keep telling me I'm not enough? Would you evict these thoughts that make me so afraid and so angry all the time? No matter what it is, no matter the request, we do so believing that God actually hears us. And not only that, but he, he loves me. He cares deeply about my life and my pain. It, what you're going through, it matters to him. And what you're asking for matters to him. There's this story in the, book, in the, yeah, the Gospel of Mark about a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And uh, he spent his days sitting on the roadside in a large city called Jericho, just begging. And uh, the fame and intrigue of Jesus and stories of what he could do had become really well known uh, and it, it had attracted 
crowds of people in Jericho that, that when he came to visit. And as Bartimaeus realized that Jesus was walking down this very street at this very moment, he wasted no time and he didn't hold back. And he began to shout out, right? He didn't know he's blind, doesn't know where Jesus is, but he knows he's there. So he just starts screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But the voices around him started to respond, shut up. Be quiet. No one wants to hear your problems. Least of all, Jesus. But he wasn't deterred. In fact, he ignored the voices and he just started shouting even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. He knew his cry would reach the ears of Jesus and it did. And it caused him to stop in his tracks And the body language of Jesus said it all. This man calling my name has my full attention. And then came the invitation, come, come to me. And his response, Jesus asks, what is it you want me to do for you? What is your ask? What are you asking God for? There are many people who just complain for complaining's sake. I've been one of them before. But sooner or later, the one who complains needs to confront this question. What is it you want? What do you think you need right now? Like, what, what is it that you're fighting for? Will you just name it? Boldly name it. Because I found that for some people, the only thing that they actually want is to complain and to just be negative. But this is a very different goal than lamenting. Our prayers of lament, they do allow us to release and to vent our complaint, but that's not where we want to stay. Like We aren't just simply hurling our issues into the open air. We're throwing them into loving arms and we want things to be different. And my guess is that there's a a good number of us that, that don't ask God for much at all. Whether it's feeling like we, like I've got this impression, like I can't because it'll come across as ungrateful or I'm not allowed to, or maybe deep down you're scared. If you do ask him for something, you'll be let down because he won't answer you. Or maybe you're hearing voices like Bartimaeus, quiet, Jesus doesn't want to hear from you. But throughout scripture, we see that God doesn't simply accommodate our request. He actually invites us to ask unapologetically. Jesus himself said that God is a good father who loves to give good gifts to those who love him, or the, to those who ask him. And in one of his teachings, he once shared a parable of a widow who uh, had this great need. And so she goes to this judge and she just bugs the heck out of him. I mean, just like repeatedly and persistently asks and asks and asks until finally he just caves and gives her what she's asking for. And the point of the story, it says in scripture, it says, Jesus told this story to show people that they should always pray and not give up. Keep at it. And this is one of the things that I'm always encouraging our college students and young adults when I'm with them and hanging out with them one-on-one. Ask, what is your ask? Because like Bartimaeus and the widow, you can ask unapologetically and repeatedly because a loving father of children expects nothing less and takes no offense. And he invites you to do it. Psalm 6, 9 says, the Lord Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Psalm 
And so make your request. It does matter. It does make a difference. It does do something. And this brings us to the fourth and final element of our lament, which is choosing to trust. Choosing to trust. If we read prayers of lament in scripture, you'll see that there's always this turn to a a new tone, a different kind of tone and posture of trust where anger and protest and all, all the other raw emotions and complaints somehow give way to this confidence that God can be trusted with our pain, trusted with our heart and our situation. We'll see it in Psalm 13, five and six, where he says, but can we just take a, moment to appreciate how profound of a word that is to speak after we pour out our grief and our pain and our utter puzzlement. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, when he says he has dealt bountifully with me, uh, this isn't necessarily saying, uh, hey, I trust you because you have solved all my problems. You have answered all my questions. Thank you for that. Now I can move on. But rather, this is expressing a confidence that despite how things play out from here, I do not believe that God has shortchanged me, nor will he. And as far as God's goodness is concerned, No matter what I'm going through right now, he's not holding back on me, nor will he. Even though I hurt, even though none of this makes sense, even though I have no explanation, I believe that God is still for me and intends the best for me and delights in me and therefore I can have hope. You see, for all the honest, raw, emotional intensity of my prayer of lament, this is not an indication that I have forfeited hope. No, this is my act of reclaiming and renewing hope. Because when we face suffering, our hope, it's not in an explanation. Our hope is not in circumstances. Our hope is in knowing him. It's hard to talk about the subject of grief and loss and lament without at least at some point mentioning Job because his story is one of extreme suffering. And he, I mean, he lost just about everything you can lose. And throughout the more than 40 chapters of his lament, much of it is a wrestling with why. That's just like some of the, many of the Psalms that we've kind of like glanced at this morning. Why? Why? But if you read the story carefully, you'll see that Job actually never gets to understand why all that loss and suffering occurred. I mean, he goes to the grave without ever getting an answer. And while he is real and honest about his pain, he doesn't hold back. And he struggles with this question of why throughout the book, throughout his laments, what satisfies Job in the end isn't an explanation. It's a knowing God better. And what satisfies him in the end isn't a change in circumstances. It's knowing him better. You see, after he goes through this great suffering and he laments about it, he has this encounter and this conversation with God finally. And we see in Job 42, 5, some of the the very last verses of the book, 
And Job says, man, he's talking to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He does not say, ah, now I see why. I get it. He's not saying, oh, now I see. You're going to change things up for me, and it's, it's going to end up being really great. No, no, what he says is, now I see you. I have hope in my suffering because I see you. You see, there was something about the season he endured, this experience of loss that allowed Job to receive a new vision of who God really is and, and what his heart is really like. He was, he was able to see a side of him that was previously unknown to him. And this vision was so profound that he dismisses all his former knowledge and understanding of God to mere hearsay and rumor. I had heard of you, he says, which is kind of crazy because if you consider how this book opens, it begins with God himself saying, man, Job and I were boys. He calls Job his servant. He says, there's no one in all the earth like Job. He is blameless and upright and righteous. Yet despite that relationship that Job enjoyed with God, it was only after enduring this season, getting thrown to his face and crying out and experiencing God's presence and voice and spirit in the midst of that, that Job could say, now I see who you really are. You are so much bigger than I had ever imagined. Your love is more extravagant than I had ever imagined. You are closer to me than I had ever imagined. You are stronger and more holy and more active than I had ever imagined. And you guys, I am convinced, not just theologically from reading the Bible, but through my own personal experiences of loss and losing my sister, and losing my brother-in-law, and losing friends and students I have pastored, and through the various moments of defeat and pain and grief and disappointment that I have sat in, that there is a side of God that is simply impossible to, to see unless you view it through the lens of loss. Unless you turn to him through lament. And I know the feeling. I know the feeling of wanting answers. I know what it's like to just beg for an explanation. I know the feeling of wanting things to be different. But I have found that the real gift, the real gift is that God offers himself to you in your grief in ways that he just doesn't at any other time in your life. And so ultimately, it is in this that I trust. It's in this that I place my hope because I have found that ultimately, it is this and only this that has brought real healing and fulfillment and comfort and satisfaction to my life. It is knowing him better that has changed my life and has helped me see my way through that new landscape. Worship team, why don't you guys come up here and join me on stage? Each week during this series, what we've done is we've put together a short digital uh, prayer book, for the lack of a better way to describe it, for you guys to text in and download that aligns with our subject for that morning. And uh, for today, I've put together um, something for you around the subject of prayer of lament. 
And so what you can do is you can text the word lament to, to our texting number. And what I've put in it is basically a guide to walk you through your own prayers of lament. Each of these four signature movements. And then I've also included a really moving uh, prayer of lament from the poet Anne Weems. And so I encourage you guys to, to download that and to use it in your own time. But how I'd like to close this morning with you this morning is to just give you your own time and space to talk to God. And so if we can, um, yeah, we put up the four different things that we discussed this morning, the different kind of elements of a lament. I think it might feel like possibly a bit of a rush to try to pray through all of this. So that's not really what I'm going to ask you to do. But here's, here's what I will invite you to do is just pick one of those four right now. The one that you would just like to spend a few moments sitting in. And in just a second, our team is just going to play lightly and just want to give you a moment. You can spend a few moments just turning to God, just, just orienting your thoughts and your heart around him, his presence, his name, because you have to remember that our prayers are addressed to a real person who knows your name and who loves you and who's listening to you. And he is here. If you feel like you need to, you can just take your time, this time to just release to him. Maybe like me, you've been just like holding it in, bottling it all up, or you've been reluctant to let it out, but I'm telling you, he can hold it and you can take this moment to just thrust it and throw it into his arms. It can be as messy as you want. You can make your requests. Share your ask. He's listening. He accepts your prayers. Or perhaps you've been in this place of, of crying out and making a request for some time now, and this morning what just makes sense is you just surrender yourself and your situation into in, the hands of God and, and you choose to trust in his timing, you choose to trust in his will and you choose to trust in his way. And this morning, you can reclaim and renew hope in your life. God, would you hear our prayers this morning? And would you show us, remind us that you are here, you are listening, we place ourselves and our lives, whatever it is that we're going through, in your hands.